You're listening to episode number eight of the Divorce Resource Guy podcast. We're talking personality disorders with my guest, Christine Hammond. Three, two, one. Welcome to the Divorce Resource Guy podcast with Jason Lavoie, a.k.a. the Divorce Resource Guy, a former divorce attorney turned divorce coach, talking about all things divorce, including the good, bad, and the ugly from an attorney's point of view. Remember, you're not alone. And now your host, Jason Lavoy. Hey, everybody. Welcome to yet another show. Glad you're here. Today's guest is going to be a good one. We have Christine Hammond. Christine is a licensed mental health counselor, and she's a qualified supervisor by the state of Florida. She's a national certified counselor. She's a parent coordination trained counselor, collaborative practitioner, certified family trauma professional, a trained crisis responder, and a group crisis intervention trained. Does that sound like enough for you? She specializes in personality disorders, narcissism, and borderline, trauma recovery, mental health disorders, addictions, ADD, OCD, codependency, anxiety, anger, depression, the whole lot of it. She works one-on-one. She works in groups with organizations, and she works to customize relationship plans and meet the needs of her clients. I am so happy and excited to welcome Christine Hammond to the show. Hey, Christine, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I am so excited to have you today. Uh, I think everybody listening is going to really love uh, what you have to bring to the table. Before we get started, uh, and today's show, we're going to, I think, focus on narcissists and narcissism. Everybody loves that. It's a great subject. It's a great subject, and it's a conversation starter for sure. Give everybody a little bit of background about you and kind of how you got to this point in life. So how I got here was I grew up in a family of narcissists, and um, there's nothing quite like that to wake you up to what a disorder actually is, and became a therapist myself, and because I learned how to deal with them in my own personal life, um, I now counsel others, and that's my specialty, is to work with people who have personality disorders, and I work with their family members, sometimes co-workers. Um, anybody that's really related to a person who has the disorder um, in order to give them a fully integrated system and allow them to do well or do better um, in their relationships and in their life overall. So I pretty much manage or help manage their lives so that they function well and don't wind up in the multiple divorce cases that they normally do wind up in. Right, right. And that's actually something I want to talk to you uh, with at some point in this conversation is kind of, you know, how not to make the same mistakes in the next relationship. But let's save that for the end. Okay. <laughs> that's the last part. Yeah, that's the last part. That'll be the uh, the little teaser for everybody to to listen to the end. You kind of just brought up a good point. I want to, maybe we could start there. As far as you work with people with personality disorders. Now, People throw around the term narcissist, uh, you know, pretty often and especially in a divorce context. And maybe, you know, I tend to think it's overused a little bit um, sometimes. Now, along the lines of labeling somebody a narcissist, and we're going to get into that in a second, the term or the diagnosis narcissistic narcissistic personality disorder Let's just touch on that from the beginning because I want to make sure people understand, is there a difference between somebody who is a narcissist and somebody who has a personality disorder, the 
NPD, I guess it's commonly referred to? Yes, I love that question. So I would say, yes, there is. So you got to think of narcissism as like a sliding scale where you have everything from narcissistic traits and common ones that we see are this arrogant attitude about themselves, this superiority, exaggeration um, of what they have accomplished in the past, having absolutely no empathy, no remorse. Um, and in treating other people as if they're inferior. So if you think of like that as just being traits of narcissism all the way up until you have the personality disorder, which I would say, so if the traits are like a one and the scale goes um, all the way up to a 10, a five would be the personality disorder in and of itself, meaning that you have, you meet the diagnostic criteria of it. Um, And that is There's nine characteristics of it, and you should meet like five out of the nine characteristics. And it has to be prevalent, meaning that it is in every environment. It's at work. It's at home. um, It's in your community. It's all over the place. So it's not isolated to one area. And it also has to have occurred throughout your lifetime. In other words, people don't just all of a sudden become narcissistic when they're 40 years old. They have been that way for a long time. You are officially allowed to diagnose somebody as having this diagnosis at the age of 18, Um, but we would see it throughout their entire adult lifehood, those those kinds of narcissistic traits. So that's right right at the middle is a number five. And then you think of that scale all the way up to a number 10, where we don't just have narcissism, but we have narcissism and other personality disorders commingled together, meaning that... Um, This is a more severe case. So you might have a sociopath and a narcissist or a psychopath and a narcissist or somebody who has borderline personality disorder and narcissism mixed in. And so that would be at the scale of a 10. So you can have everything from very mild traits all the way through the disorder and then all the way to the disorder plus other disorders that are equally as intense. And what I want to just say real quick about a personality disorder in and of itself There's nine different kinds of personality disorders that you could possibly have. Narcissism is just one of those nine. And um, a personality disorder is characterized by a lack of accurate perception of reality. So what I want you to think about when you're thinking about a narcissist, it's kind of like you put on some sunglasses that are tinted yellow. And so everything you see through those yellow sunglasses, has that yellow tinge to it. That's what a personality disorder does to you. It is, you cannot see things in the full color spectrum that they exist. You see them through that very limited color variety that's right in front of you. So I like to think of it as less of a disorder and more of a disability um, because, because it doesn't ever change. It doesn't go away. You have it, you have it, you're stuck with it. So because you have it, um, it is more of a disability in that those glasses are like permanently fixed to your face. Would you, would you say it's kind of like tunnel vision? Yes, I would say it's kind of like tunnel vision where they become very myopic in what they're able to see and they can't see the variety of possibilities. Right. So, you know, they, they're very narrow minded in what they're able to Um, go for or see as possibilities. They can be very black and white in their thinking at times. So is somebody who you would diagnose with a a personality disorder, in this case, NPD, let's say, Mm -hmm. are they they born with this disorder or is it something that's learned? 
Yeah, so I love that. Um, so yes, it's a three-part process. That's what I call it. So the first part of the process is biology, meaning that if I look at a person who has NPD and I look at their family tree, I will see other people who have that disorder or another type of personality disorder. There's actually something that can occur that you can see physiologically on brain scans. So you can look at these brain scans and you can see that the area in the brain, which normally lights up when a person is being empathetic, does not light up for a narcissist, a sociopath, or a psychopath because they do not have the ability for empathy. So it's actually a thing that we can see that goes on in someone's brain. That's the biology. That's the DNA aspect. That's aspect number one. Aspect number two is environment, meaning that within that environment that you grew up in, there was something that happened, something that occurred, whether it was um, a parent who was a narcissist who treated you with neglect, whether it was abuse that you experienced, whether it was um, a bullying situation that happened to you, whether it was um, some severe form of abandonment. Uh, there was something that happened to you in your childhood that drew out the narcissistic traits. So that's number two. Number one is biology. Number two is environment. Number three is choice. So because you cannot diagnose until you're 18, you have this window of time period when you're a teenager that if you have the traits for it, because the fun part about diagnosing at 18 is, I have to have five years prior history of these traits appearing in their life. So during those period of time, during those five years prior to 18, I have a unique opportunity for this teenager to say, you know what? I really don't like this. I don't like this about myself, that I appear arrogant to other people. And I'm going to work hard, even though it might be against my nature even though my environment might tell me that it's okay to be arrogant and actually supports it and encourages it, I don't like that about myself and I'm gonna work hard to change that or to fight that about me. So you have that, that opportunity when you're a teen to say, I'm gonna choose this or I'm not gonna choose that. The problem we have in our society today is that narcissists are glorified from everything from like movie stars to sports figures to politicians, like they are glorified and, and like brought out in front and said, see, if you act like them, then you too can be successful or you can get wherever you want. So that yeah. makes that last part really, really difficult. So it's a three-part process that kind of gets you to the whole narcissistic uh, personality disorder diagnosis. Is there, a, uh, is there a particular reason why you, you can't diagnose until 18? Yeah, because your personality is not set in stone until you're 18. So um, it goes all the way back to Psychology 101, Eric Erickson, and his eight stages of psychosocial development. And basically, he said between the ages of 12 and 18, you are trying to form your personality and that your personality is not fully set in stone until you're 18 years old. We call, we call it role identity versus confusion meaning that you're trying on different roles to see if you like this. So you might take 
um, your mother's kindness as something that you want to be like going forward. You might take your dad's hard work as something that you would want to do going forward. And you kind of put that together with your friends and how they act and behave. And that kind of helps to form and mold your personality. And that process isn't completed until 18. So that's the reason for the 18. Gotcha. Interesting. Um, and regarding, I don't want to get too technical. Uh, okay. And, 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 and poor, no, no, it's not you. I just think regarding the biology of it. Yes. Is it different than, let's say, depression where, you know, you could have a chemical imbalance and you could treat it with medication? Um, you know, is it something like a personality disorder, like NPD, is it something where with medication, it can open up that empathy gene? <laughs> and, and, <laughs> no, we wish. Right? That's a lovely drug. Um, <laughs> there is no such thing. Um, and and there, I don't think that there's anything even being marketed for that. Um, because it is a personality disorder, that means it's, it's every aspect of your being. Um, so it isn't something that you can just take a drug for and all of a sudden you're different or you feel different or you feel better. Um, so, but you can be a narcissist who's depressed, um, and you can be really obnoxious as a narcissist who's depressed. You can take medication and be a less version of the obnoxious narcissist. That's a possibility. Um, but I can't, there's no drug to make a personality disorder go away. There is no medication for that. Um, that is just something that you have to do through, you have to work through therapy. It's a lifelong thing. It's something you've got to work at and the people around you need to be aware of it. Um, so that they set reasonable expectations and boundaries. Gotcha. Okay. Now let's, so that's a good segue. Let's talk about narcissists now. Okay. Um, we, we've all at some point in our lives, I'm sure have dealt with a narcissist. Uh, many of the listeners to this show right now have a spouse who's a narcissist or they think so. So one of the things, because that term is kind of thrown around, you know, very often. And like I said at the beginning, I think sometimes, you know, too often and improperly, let's, let's try to narrow it down and help everybody understand how to identify if your spouse is a narcissist. Okay. That's a fabulous question. So um, let's just kind of look through the disorder in and of itself, and I will read you some of the traits. So the first one is a grandiose sense of self-importance. In other words, here's an example of that. They will exaggerate what they've accomplished. So they might not have won the state championship when they were in high school, but they're going to tell everybody that not only did they win the state championship, but they scored the winning touchdown. So that's a perfect example of somebody who exaggerates what they have actually accomplished. And they just kind of take it for granted that nobody's really going to double check things um, and kind of look into that past history. Uh, there have been a lot of people who have fallen as a result of that um, in the entertainment community and in the political community because they exaggerated what they actually did when they didn't really do it. And then, you know, quick little Google search revealed that that wasn't real. Um, and that's a perfect example of what that is. So that's number one. Number wait, two. Wait, before you go to number two, yeah. is that exaggeration or is that just lying? <laughs> okay, so that's a great question. Um, <laughs> it's both, you know. Um, not, not only are they exaggerating, but they know that they're doing it. It's right. not that they don't know that they're doing it. They do know that they're doing it, but they just think that they can get away with it. And so they'll take something that, that happened. They were at the game 
um, and they will make it be that they are the reason why they won the game. So it's a very typical thing um, so that they look, come out looking better. I've known a lot of narcissists to exaggerate things like how much money they make. So like um, they might like take their money and just kind of double it a little bit. Um, they might say that they bought this car at a certain price or drive a certain car and they don't really drive that car. They drive a lesser version, but nobody knows the difference. So that's a very typical kind of thing where they just exaggerate some things just to make themselves feel better um, than the person that they're talking to. Right. Okay. Sorry to interrupt you. Go right. on to number two. No, please go ahead. All right. Number two. Um, preoccupied with fantasies of unlimited success, power, brilliance, beauty, or ideal love. So that means that they they fantasize and they actually believe that no matter what they do, no matter what they touch, they're going to be successful. Um, so I've known narcissists who can't hold down a job, yet every single time they go into an interview or they go into a situation and like they're going to be the top dog in no time flat because they're the most smartest person, best person. They know everything. They should be running the company kind of attitude. Um, if we're talking about females, because I want to say this real quick, like um, females in particular have this sense of um, unlimited beauty, meaning that they're never going to get old. So they do things like excessive plastic surgeries. I'm not talking like one or two. That doesn't, that's not narcissistic. I'm talking the ones that do 10, 20, 30 plastic surgeries because they can never get old or look old. Wow. Yeah. So that's number two. Number three, they believe that they're special and unique and can only be understood by other people who are in that same category. So they'll act like they're super intelligent. And if you're not as smart as them, they don't have to talk to you. They'll talk down to you. They'll treat you um, poorly if, if you're not at the same level as them. Or they'll treat you badly because you don't make as much money as they do. Um, or you don't live in the right neighborhood or go to the right club, whatever it is. It, it's, they have this attitude that they are special and that nobody else is like them. Number four, they require excessive admiration. Now, this is the part that has to be fed for a narcissist over and over again. I say that there are four things that a narcissist needs for a daily feeding. They need admiration, attention, appreciation, and adoration. And if you're married to them, they also need affection. So that's five. Um, but they need a daily feeding of those things. If they don't get it, they literally go ballistic. Um, it's, it's like, they can't stand it. They're so mad. And then that's when you get the temper tantrums and the flare-ups that narcissists are so very common for. That was number four. Number five, they have a sense of entitlement, meaning that they expect you to do whatever they tell you to do without ever questioning it because whatever they say or do is the right thing to do. And whatever you think you should be doing is irrelevant, unnecessary, and wrong. That's number five. So far, it sounds like a toddler. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Like, they are giant toddlers. It's like they never grew up past age two. Yes, you're 100% right. Um, that's exactly what it looks like. And that's exactly what it looks like when they throw a temper tantrum. It looks like a giant two-year-old right in front of you, literally losing it and going off on something absolutely ridiculous that had, it, sometimes you don't even know what it is. You, do, you don't even know what set them off. 
Because yeah, I have a four-year-old, and I'm like, as you're going down these lists, I'm like, you know, that sounds a lot like my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Don't let her hear this. Okay, <laughs> number six, um, they're exploitive. So they will take advantage of other people in order to achieve their own needs, including family members. So they will take advantage of a family member. They will steal from a family member. They will lie to family members. Um, they will put down family members. They'll do whatever they have to do. Um, and it's not just family members. They do this at work too, where they take credit for things that weren't really theirs. Um, so they take advantage of other people who won't speak up, who won't say anything um, in order to make themselves look better. Number seven, they lack empathy. So not only are they unable to identify with the feelings or the needs of other people, but um, oh, so wait, this is my favorite part. <laughs> so narcissists are really good at telling you what their feelings and their needs are. They're amazingly good at that. Um, <laughs> they're hyperly self-aware to the point that it is exhausting because they need so much all the time. Um, but if you try to tell them about the exact same subject, not even a different subject, that you need the same thing that they need, they will tell you that you're being weak, you're not being strong enough that you're stupid for asking it. They'll put you down. They'll belittle you. They'll make fun of you. Um, and it's the exact same thing that they have asked for. But what they need, if you don't deliver it, they're going to throw that temper tantrum. But they have absolutely no empathy for you needing the exact same thing. That's interesting because if you were to put up a mirror and say, you know, well, you just asked me for the exact same thing, what would a typical response be from a narcissist to that? <laughs> they would sit there and say, you're lying. Um, <laughs> and they would tell you that um, I never said that. You took my words out of context. That's not what I meant. Why do you use things against me? I can't believe you would say that about me. You're always putting me down. That's what yeah. they would do. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah, it's fun. All right. Number eight, they're often envious of others or they believe that others are envious of them. So they believe that other people want what they have all the time and are constantly trying to get it. A lot of times they're secretly envious of other people, what they look like, what they have, but they won't ever tell that to anyone. Um, they rather believe that other people are just dying to have everything that they have. And then the last one is the most obvious one, and that's where they show arrogant attitudes, behaviors, um, just that they're better than um, and you just should be quiet and just let them be all that there is. So like what I usually say to people is the easiest way to tell that you're dealing with a narcissist, and you can do this on a first date, is when you go to the restaurant, how do they treat the waiter or the waitress? Yes. Because if they treat the waiter or waitress like they're a piece of crap and that they can't do anything right, you have a narcissist in your midst. Yep, I love, I love that test. Whenever yeah. I go out, and I, I'm eating with other people, or even I just look at other people, you know, I kind of people watch other tables. Mm -hmm. it's, just, it's just amazing to, to watch how people interact with, you know, service staff in restaurant settings. Yeah, you could tell a lot by how somebody treats somebody. Right, exactly. Especially somebody that they feel is beneath them, right? Do they treat them well, or do they treat them poorly? Because right. when you treat them poorly, then that shows that you have this sense of superiority, I'm better, I deserve more, you deserve less attitude. 
Right, exactly. It, it, and it's so apparent in that type of setting too. Um, so for everybody listening out there, next time you eat out at a restaurant, a sit-down restaurant, pay attention to, you know, in addition to the people at your table, if you're, you know, e- eating with other people, look at other tables near you and and look at how they're interacting with the with the wait staff and the servers and you'd be surprised at what you see. Yeah, absolutely. And the funny part about the narcissist is that they will go out of their way to try to find the manager or the owner of the restaurant and they will schmuck it up with them. They will be unbelievably charming with that person, but with the waiter or the waitress, they will literally treat them like they're crap. Right. Yeah, no, that, that makes perfect sense. And it's so evident when you actually pay attention to it. Yep. All right. So did we cover all the factors? We did all nine okay. of them. Yeah. <laughs> That's a lot of factors there. Yes, um, I know. Now, can you have a, a narcissist who, who doesn't have all nine of those factors or how many of those factors does it take to have a narcissist on your hands? Only five. Only five. Yep. All right. You only have to have five to be, have the actual diagnosis. Although um, most of the people, once they hear all nine of those, the very few of them, um, it's below seven. Right. No, a lot of it applies. Absolutely. Um, And I'm sure as you kind of going through the factors, everybody listening is kind of thinking of people in their lives that fit that mold, you know, in addition to their spouses, perhaps. Right. Um, What would you say as a kind of a a side question here? Is there a percentage of the population that you believe falls under the category of a narcissist? There's been a couple of studies done on this. And the problem that we have is, um, you know, it's not very accurate. So uh, probably they've said is like 10% or less than 10% of the population is narcissistic. It seems like it's more. Um, And the reason it seems like it's so high is because they're the ones that are loud and in front. And which will bring me up to my next point in a second, which is there's two main types of narcissists. So there's the overt narcissist, and then there's the covert narcissist. The overt narcissist um, is the one who's obnoxious. They're loud. They walk into a room, and they are immediately the center of attention. It's like they suck all the air and energy out, and they absorb it all. And everybody knows them. They're friends with a million different people. They're schmoozing right and left. Like, that's the overt narcissist. Very, very charming. The covert narcissist is more of your silent narcissist. So they will walk into the exact same room. They will sit in a corner and they will expect people to come to them because they are so great and everybody should just know that they are there and everybody should come in their direction. And when people don't, they get angry and they storm off and they shun all of the people who ignore them because they didn't pay proper attention to them at the party. Interesting. I, I don't think I was aware of the covert narcissist. Most people aren't. <laughs> um, that's usually why I mention it. Um, most people are very unaware that that is happening and that that's a real thing. Um, there's a lot of females tend to be more covert narcissists, where males tend to be more overt narcissists. So you get a lot more of that kind of like, if you think of a covert narcissist, that's the person who does the silent treatment. And I don't mean like won't talk to you for a couple hours. I mean days, weeks, months won't talk to you. Um, hold a grudge, don't talk to you. 
uh, hold a grudge, like never forget something that's gone wrong, literally cuts people off and out of their life just because of whatever. Um, and, and they decide that they have no use for them anymore. Um, they are very sneaky and very silent. They will intentionally not say anything to anyone. So you don't even know that you've upset them. That's the hard part. You have no idea that you have upset them, but yet they will hold on to that for dear life and for forever. Now, will the covert narcissist be more passive aggressive than an overt narcissist? Yes, definitely. Okay. Interesting. Very interesting. Now, you work with a lot of people going through a divorce who deal with narcissists, right? I do. Yes. So let's talk a little bit about that. How or what tips do you have for people who are dealing with a narcissistic spouse uh, who are kind of going through the divorce process? Okay. My first biggest tip, if you are married to a narcissist and you want to get a divorce from them, the best thing you can do is try to get them to file the paperwork instead of you. And here's the reason I say this. A narcissist cannot stand to be abandoned or treated like they are less than or tossed away or forgotten. Now they will do that to other people all day long, but they will not tolerate it being done to them. So they get super angry at that and they will escalate the divorce. And I have seen this happen over and over and over again to these unbelievable, crazy hearings, motions, subpoenas, just whatever they have to do in order to tear their spouse to shreds because their spouse has a nerve to ask for a divorce. Now, if the narcissist wants a divorce from their spouse, it is quick, easy, fast, as quick as possible. They don't understand why their spouse wants to you know, drag out the divorce. They don't understand what their problem is because they have moved on and their spouse had better move on at the same pace that they're moving. So you're always better off if you can somehow get the narcissist to file the paperwork rather than you filing it um, because they will want to move quickly through that process as opposed to the other way around. Yeah. And it really all comes back to the control, right? Narcissists has to be in control or feel like they're in control. Yeah. Not only control, um, but they have to feel like, like they are, they are the ones that are better in the scenario. And how dare somebody say that they weren't worthy or good enough to be married to them because right. they're so great. Don't you know it? You know, that right, kind of Right. How dare you divorce me? Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, okay. So that's a great tip. You know, try to get them if to, to act first. Now, how do you do that? Do you have any tips on, on how to do that? <laughs> you have to be a little clever probably a little manipulative to get it done. Um, so you have to start throwing out the idea of getting a divorce early on. So before you ever throw out the idea of divorcing a narcissist, let me say this. If you want to divorce a narcissist, make sure you have all your paperwork lined up ahead of time. Yes. And make sure you have put money away that they yep. don't know about. Preparation is key. I, I tell people all the time. 100% key and even more so in this case. Because as soon as they catch wind that you are divorcing them or you may be divorcing them, they will cut you off of the credit cards, the bank accounts, everything. Yep. Um, and so it is imperative that you make sure 
you have that already put aside and you have all of your important papers and documents. I've known narcissists to take the passports and birth certificates, um, to cut up all of the credit cards, to remove their spouses from the bank accounts, like things that you shouldn't be able to do. They've been able to do. I don't know how, but they've right. been able to do it. Um, and if the spouse hadn't already saved copies of all of that stuff, uh, then there would be nothing there. And, and they would literally be up a creek without it. So, um, so please, before you ever even start mentioning the word divorce, um, have all of your little ducks lined up all in a row so that you're ready to go. So having said that, what you would do if you want to try to get them to divorce you is, um, and again, this is slightly manipulative, and I know it is, but a narcissist's greatest fear is to be shamed or embarrassed. They right. cannot stand that. That is the worst thing ever. So if they know that you are thinking of getting a divorce, um, they will literally want to jump the gun ahead of you to prevent that from happening because they can't stand to be ashamed or embarrassed um, or humiliated. So, so laying groundwork of you want to get a, but not like I want to get a divorce. Like I would throw it on your, um, how do I get a divorce? You know, so it's like on your computer and you left your computer open so that they see it. Like you have to make it a little hard, you know? Your last Google search. Right. right, exactly. It has to be a little difficult so that they think that they're finding a treasure. Right. Um, and, and so I, I actually had a client who did this. Um, and it's a very interesting story. She had been thinking about getting a divorce. And the first time her and I were talking on the phone, she actually said to me, you know, I'm not sure whether I want to do marriage counseling or divorce counseling. I'm kind of like one foot in and one foot out. And literally we were talking on the phone because it was kind of, it was our first time together. And, um, and while we're talking on the phone, the doorbell rings. And so she go and he's, he's upstairs, he's asleep or pretending to be asleep. So she goes to the door and she sees this person and she knows that it's a server. She's getting served. She's getting served paper. She could tell by the look and she starts panicking. She's like, what do I do? I said, don't answer the door. Like he's here. Tell him you're on the phone. Tell him he needs to go get it. So she, so she does do that. And he won't wake up because he wants to serve her. Right. He wants that whole big show. So he had set up this whole entire scenario knowing that she would be home for the server to come out so he could serve her divorce papers because she had mentioned it about a month ago that she was considering getting a divorce from him. And so he had to be the first one out of the gate to do it to her. Hmm. Yeah, that sounds, uh, that sounds like a classic scenario. Yeah, pretty much. And then he'll wake up, walk downstairs and say, well, you know, what's in the mail? <laughs> right, exactly. Right, right. Yeah, that's what he did. He was cute. Oh. Uh, what other tips um, can you throw at us for you know dealing with uh, a narcissist in a divorce? Let's say after the divorce started, um, depending on you know who filed, doesn't matter at this point. We're in the process. What what can you do to kind of make it a, make it easier to deal with your narcissist? Uh, well, the first thing is you got to get ready for the roller coaster ride because there's going to be massive ups and downs. So even though the narcissist has gone ahead and agreed to the divorce process and you're starting that process with them, 
they will do things like they'll come back to you at some point in time and say, oh, can we just make this work? You know, I love you, blah, blah, blah. We should just like, and they'll all of a sudden love bomb you, kind of like what they did at the very beginning to like wheel you back in. Right. And so as soon as they have you wheeled back in, then that's when they hit you again with something else. So it, it's a tactic that they're doing. It's called the push-pull tactic, where they will push you away by calling you literally every name in the book. And then they'll pull you back in by love bombing you so that they can push you away and punish you because you're divorcing them. And then they'll pull you back in so then they can push you away again and punish you. So you have to get used to that roller coaster ride with them and know that it's coming and not be surprised by it. And then absolutely do not believe their BS when they say to you, oh, I want you back. You're the love of my life, all that other kind of stuff, because they haven't changed. They're not going to change. Um, that isn't a real thing. They're going to be the same person that they were before. You right. just got to keep moving forward. I use that exact same analogy, the roller coaster, when I describe the divorce process. I, you know, I say strap yourself in because it's going to be a ride. Um, and you're going to have your ups and downs just like that. Now, this is something I've actually always wondered. And since I have you here, I'm going to ask you. Yeah. <laughs> when a, a narcissist speaking of the pull, push-pull tactics, when they are pulling you back in with the love bombing, as you called it, right. in their mind, do they know they're doing it with the intention to manipulate you and, and then push you away again? Or in their mind, do they believe that they're really trying to get you back? That's a great question. And it's um, yes to both. <laughs> Not okay. trying to be a lawyer at this moment. Yeah, right. Um, so, so... Yes, they do know that they're being manipulative to some degree because they've done this before. That's how they got you in the first place. They knew that um, they had to shower you with gifts and all kinds of stuff and like just be a totally different person um, in order for you to just fully believe that they were everything that they said that they were. But it was a mask that they put on. They did it as a front in order to um, rope you in. Once they did, the mask got lifted. And then all of a sudden, this other person appeared. Um, most of my clients say that um, they got married very quickly. Telltale narcissistic marriage. They get married in less than six months of meeting each other. Um, and uh, most of them averages three months uh, because that's about as long as a mask can last for a narcissist. And then as soon as they get married, then it's like this other person is there. And uh, they're totally different. And they're not even anything like they were before. So... So part of the manipulation, yes, the narcissist knows they're doing it in order to get you, but they don't know the exaggeration or the extreme or the level of which they are actually doing it. That's that lack of accurate perception of reality that we started off with in defining a personality disorder. They can't see that. They can't see the various colors um, or the shades of blue because they have those yellow glasses on. And so they see the blue, but they only see it as one color, not as a multiple variety of different shades. Right. And it sounds to me, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but it sounds to me a narcissist needs to be with, in order to thrive, to be with in a relationship kind of a setting or a marriage, to be with somebody who is not a narcissist, right, who will feed into and buy into their you know, shtick, if you want to call it that. Um, 
Or do you find that narcissists attract narcissists? Like, can two narcissists be together? Oh, yeah. Um, that show that was canceled um, a way back um, called House of Cards showed two narcissists being married to each other. Um, and there's a lot of other shows that have showed the marriage of two narcissists. It's a very common thing, actually, because um, when two narcissists marry, um, there's no intimacy really between them. Like they'll have sex, but there's no intimacy because those are two different things. Um, but for them, it's the one and the same thing. And they don't really care about being intimate with anybody because they don't want to expose themselves that way anyway. Right. So they're usually comfortable with like multiple affairs within a marriage. Um, they don't really care if somebody else is there or not. They're very much concerned with appearances and looking to be like the perfect family. Um, how they dress, what they drive, where they live, all of that is super important Important when you have two narcissists who are married to each other. Um, that can be a dangerous couple because the poor little children have um, no parent then who has any amount of empathy. Um, they have no real love because there's no real attachment that narcissists make onto their children. Um, and if they do form an attachment, it's this horribly, horrifically unhealthy attachment in which um, the child becomes more like like another parent and less like a child, um, so it's it's not it's not very good. Um, so that's a marriage of two narcissists. So it's a it's a terrible arrangement, but it does work for narcissists. If they don't have kids, that's even better because with kids it's terrible. Um, and with yeah, and with kids. In your experience, what, what happens to the kids? Do the kids grow up to be narcissists too? Is it like a cycle? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's part of that um, step two. Like we have the biology and then we have the environment. So when you grow up with a narcissistic parent, that's what's been modeled to you your whole life. And you think, oh, this is normal. Everybody should be like this. Right. And so you think it's okay. And so, so you just accept it is there's nothing wrong with it. So that's the marriage of two narcissists. And then what we also see very common is a narcissist who marries somebody who's a codependent. Um, and so their two disorders actually feed on each other. So the narcissist needs lots of admiration and affection. We talked about that, like they need a constant feeding. Well, the codependents are more than happy to provide all of that to the narcissist, including, oh, you're so great. You're so wonderful. You're the best at everything. Oh, my gosh. Um, almost like in a weird worshipy kind of way, um, because what they get in return for that is the narcissist then come back with them and you know give and and like appreciate the fact that they are such people pleasers. They actually take advantage of the fact that their spouse is a people pleaser. So it's this weird like unhealthy relationship that goes back and forth. And usually, what winds up happening in that situation is the codependent becomes sick and tired of being walked all over and taken advantage of their entire marriage and actually never receiving anything, always giving, and, and the narcissist always taking, and they never get anything back in return, and so they wind up um, wanting to leave the marriage. Right, right. It's just a matter of time, right? Yeah, it's just a matter of time in those relationships. This is a, a lot of really great information. I hope everybody's really soaking it up. We talked about some of the things that you know, some of the ways and tips on how to handle a narcissist a little bit. What are some of the things, though, if you have any that come on top of mind that you should not do when 
dealing with a narcissist, especially in a, in a divorce context? Like what shouldn't you do because it's just going to set things off? That is, that is really important to know. Um, and so uh, the number one thing is you cannot publicly shame them. So you have to, because if you do that, you will set them off to some, you know, crazy land where they literally lose it in front of everyone. Now you could use that to your advantage if you need to in, in the situation of a mediation um, or something like that where, you, where they're being unreasonable and you need to expose them because they're acting too charming in front of a judge or everybody else. So you can use that to your advantage. Um, but for the for the most part, you don't want to you don't want to do that prematurely and you don't want to do that too soon. Um, so number one on that list would be don't shame the narcissist, because if you do that, that will set them off. The other thing I would say is don't stop defending yourself. Like too often when people get into a divorce case, like they get attacked. Right. And so then they feel the need to defend themselves all the time. Well, that constantly puts them in defense mode. Right. And there's no offense that's ever happening. Right. So like the worst thing you can do when you are in a divorce with a narcissist is to constantly be in defense mode. You have to fire offensive shots every now and then in order to let the narcissist know that you're not asleep at the switch and they're not, and they are not in charge of the whole entire thing. Because if you don't do that, they will continue to run all over you. So um, in, your, in your mind, what would be an offensive move? in a divorce context? So um, like, let's say that they are asking for, cause narcissists, like um, they might ask for a 60, 40 custody where they get 60%, you get 40%. Um, even though the state probably requires or mandates a 50, 50. So instead of saying, no, I really want it to be at 50, 50 and going back to the state, you got to fire back with 60, 40. No, I want 60, 40. Um, and, and the reason for that is just to kind of like, let them know that you're not going to back down that, um, it, it's, you got to think of it as like a bully on a playground. Um, when the bully comes on the playground and says, give me your lunch money or I'm going to beat you up. You have a couple choices in that scenario. You can, um, stand up for yourself. Um, you can fire the first punch. You can make some kind of sarcastic response or you can run around or you can hand them your money and run away. The last thing you want to do, you don't ever want to just hand them everything and then run away. Right. What you right. want to do is stand up for yourself, but you don't want to make the first punch. You always want them to fire the first punch because then you're, and but you can make a sarcastic remark and look at them and say something along the lines of like, you know, I, Hey, you want my lunch money? Okay, cool. But like my lunch money is going to buy you, you know, something stupid, um, not even buy a juice box. And that's all you're going to have for lunch today. Like you, there's a way of being sarcastic and critical of them in a manner in which actually puts them in their place without them thinking that they have one up on you. You cannot allow them to one up you every single time. Right. And kind of playing along that lunch uh, money scenario. Is there ever a, a point where you think it actually is beneficial for you to throw the first punch in that situation? Like Sometimes. if you do the first punch with the narcissist or the bully, then be like, oh, you know, I wasn't expecting that and I'm not prepared for that and kind of back off. 
Um, yeah, sometimes they do. So like a first punch might be a demand for a psychological evaluation, right? That's kind of like one of my favorite things. Um, and, and if you demand the psychological evaluation, knowing that you are going to be more than happy to acquiesce and give one in return, that could be an easy first punch, especially if you've been to a bunch of therapists in the past and they've never made it through a therapy session for very long. Right. Or, you know, they've had problems at work or anything like that. All of that would show up on a psyche valve. So that, that's a good example of like a firing a first punch to kind of like wake them up a little bit. Like, oh, yeah, I don't, like I don't want a psyche valve done. My work might not like what the results are. Yeah, that might become public knowledge, right? Yeah, can be. Right. right? Because some some of the stuff that gets filed in court becomes then public knowledge and, and anybody with like a little bit of effort at your work, especially somebody who hates your guts, could find that stuff out, which narcissists have a lot of people who hate them. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. <laughs> All right. So my, my last question for you today, and this okay. has been great, is I want to see if we can give people some tips let's say all right we go through the divorce you get through the divorce and you're done and now it's life after divorce except you're never done with a narcissist well especially with children involved right right (laughs) (laughs) sorry let's remove that from the equation for a second okay and let's say let's say you're ready to kind of venture out and meet that next person you know and get into that next relationship do you find that people kind of fall into the same trends and will attract like another narcissist? And if so, what are some tips that you have to not do that? Unfortunately, the answer to that question is yes. Um, And the reason they wind up attracting to it is for this simple thing. What you don't heal from, you often repeat. It's kind of like this law of attraction, you know, Um, more than likely the reason you were attracted to a narcissist in the first place was it was like one of your parents that you didn't care for anyway. And so then you wound up marrying somebody who's very similar to a parent you don't like, and you're going to continue to follow that pattern until you actually heal um, from whatever it was that started it in the first place. So you got to get a therapy. You got to figure out what it is um, so that you don't find yourself getting back into another relationship with the same type of personality. And unfortunately, if a person doesn't marry someone who has a um, who is narcissistic, a lot of times they find another personality disorder. Um, So that's never good either. And what I usually recommend to people is that they have some friends that fully understand, and usually it's like two or three friends, um, that really fully understand what the disorder is, have seen it in action, understand it fully, um, and are willing to confront you about someone that you might be dating that they see or perceive might have the same traits or characteristics. Um, So it is important that you surround yourself with somebody else because your perception, if you've been in a relationship with a narcissist, isn't that accurate. Even even after therapy, your perception still is kind of skewed a little bit for a while, kind of like you're on train wheels. Um, And until you get your training wheels off, it's going to be hard to see straight or to see things as fully as they are. So yeah, you have friends that help you with that. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's a great piece of advice. I always kind of think about that 
you know, and analogize it like this, like you, you need a, a healthier relationship to overwrite all your, uh, you know, conceptions of what you think a healthy relationship is. Right. And, and you have to have somebody that has modeled a healthy relationship to you so that you can actually see it function. And um, usually after you've gone through a divorce, you can see, okay, there are other people who don't live the way that I do. That's what brought you to a divorce in the first place. And you're, you've just had it and you've had enough. So those are the people, the ones that are living in a functional relationship. Those are the ones that I would want you to surround yourself with and ask them to partner with you. And usually friends are really good about this. Like they love to like screen any potential dates to see if, you know, they're good enough to date you. So that, that is a thing that most friends like. Yeah. You know, you got to have a great support network. And like you said, if they're really your friends, they want to do it for you because they want to see you in a, in a good relationship, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. That's great. Great stuff. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on the show, Christine. Thank you. Hope everybody really enjoyed that. Let's let everybody know where they can find you. Um, you can find me on my website, which is growwithchristine.com, and it's G-R-O-W-W-I-T-H, Christine, C-H-R-I-S-T-I-N-E. And on my website, you will find some blog posts. I've published over 300 articles. I have a podcast. I have uh, master classes. I have one master class on how to survive a divorce with a narcissist, which has quite a bit of information on it. And then there's also my contact information there as well. Great. And uh, for all you listening, I will have that information in the show notes too. So you don't have to be scrambling around to write it down right now. It will be in the show notes for you to find uh, later on. Christine, thank you so much again for coming on the show. It was great to have you. And I can't wait to have you on uh, again to talk about some more stuff. Hey, looking forward to it. Thank you so much for inviting me. I had a great time. All right. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye-bye. All right. That was a great talk. It was a long one, too. Um, probably one of my longest shows I've done so far. But Christine, uh, she knows her stuff, and I just thought it was great. And so hopefully you all soaked it up. She knows her stuff when she's talking about uh, personality disorders and narcissists. And I know a lot of you are dealing with people uh, like that. If you haven't already, uh, I want to remind you to please subscribe to the show on iTunes. You'll get uh, notifications of all the new episodes as they come out. Right now, they're coming out every other Tuesday. And if you are interested in private divorce coaching, be sure to check out Divorce You. You can find that on my website, jasonlavoy.com. And I offer divorce coaching services along with access to video courses where I walk you through each phase of the divorce process. It's like I'm holding you by the hand, I like to say. For now, the only other thing I want you to do is be strong, act confident, and stay positive. As always, I'm Jason Lavoie, a.k.a. The Divorce Resource Guy, and I'll be seeing you real soon.